Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This was violent, it was brutal, it was a terrible thing that occurred. This is the first murder in Manio in more than a decade. Someone fatally stabbed Stacy Stanton inside her apartment on February 3rd. The only way to understand Stacy Stanton's story is to move counterclockwise in time, to go backwards to the point her clock violently stopped. The night of the attack, friends saw Stanton leave the Green Dolphin pub. That crime scene, whoever was there, they were covered in blood. He's a monster. Whoever he is, he's got to be a monster. To do, to do what he did to her was just... They wanted a suspect. You know what I mean? They wanted a suspect fast. To the police and the DA's office, this case is closed. We have some reason to believe through witnesses that they may have known each other. And... Word of an arrest spread quickly through this island town. But to those who knew Stacy, her case is very much unsolved. And instead of catching her killer, an innocent man may have also been victimized purely based on racial bias. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at The Times. Today's topic, digging up old murders. Joining us today is Delia D'Ambra, a UNC Chapel Hill graduate who's been an investigative reporter for about six years. She's covered major crimes, murder trials, and community news in Virginia, North Carolina, and Florida. In January 2018, she began researching the homicide of Denise Johnson and became immersed in drawing attention to the unsolved case, which led her to host the hit podcast, Counterclock, which released this past January. Throughout the 12-part series, Delia revisits her small coastal hometown of Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina, to dive deep into the 22-year-old cold case that's marred the image of where she grew up. Season two of Counterclock premiered in September, which centers on another local murder, this time of Mantio's Stacy Stanton. Lane was featured in season two since she covered the case when she worked on the Outer Banks. Thanks for joining us, Delia. So how'd you get into podcasting? And we were thinking, were you influenced by Serial? Is this that true crime thing? <laughs> I was in- influenced by Serial, uh, Up and Vanished, um, just a lot of different combinations of that true crime space. I mean, obviously Dateline being a heavy hitter, you know, <laughs> that's um, always an influential, uh, you know, entity that's out there. But I got into podcasting because of the skill set that I had from uh, being in news, being in TV broadcast, um, you know, for six years, I was really sharpening my skills of storytelling and, uh, you know, interview skills. Um, 
transcription skills, like all, all of those things. And so creating a podcast and a show and, and doing it um, was just merging all of those things that I was sharpening together to make a, a longer form project that I felt like I could really put my heart and time into because in television news, you're working with, with minutes, you know, to get a full report done. So that's just what led me into the space. And I'm glad I found it. Did you work on other podcasts before you got your own? Or did, how did you get your own podcast this year? Um, so I created uh, Counterclock on my own. And after uh, releasing it on my own, I was approached uh, by Ashley Flowers. And we began a, a, a business a partnership together. And so uh, we, you know, remastered and re-released season one of Counterclock to really reach a big audience, which the story so deserves. Um, I continued to work that case. And we put, you know, updated leads in the end of that season as things were happening. But really, you know, having my own podcast was just a, a at the time, was a personal effort to just do something that I loved and try and make a difference and use the skills that I had to, to get into a space that I thought was interesting and I was a big fan of. So it was sort of a self-starting thing that then became, um, a, you know, an opportunity for Audio Chuck to, to have a, a great show and, um, you know, get the, get these stories out there to the people that really, you know, should be hearing them. So did you grow up hearing about these murder cases? I mean, were they, what, what drew you to do that particular kind of work? Yeah. So, I mean, I did not know about the Denise Johnson case growing up. Um, you know, she was murdered in 97. That's when my family moved to the Outer Banks was in 97. Um, so I, I, when I wanted to start season one, I said, let me just Google a case, right? It, you know, I'll do it in my hometown. If, if there's one, I'll be shocked. But there was one. And uh, and it was it's crazy. All of the elements to it starting out were just um, so intriguing and, and so saddening, really, that more hadn't been done. Um, to try and get some resolution or a reinvestigation. Uh, the Stacey Stanton case from season two, um, I had always grown up, I actually grew up kind of skateboarding and running around the Ananias Air Street where Stacey Stanton was killed. I went to church right across the street from it. So there was always this sort of growing up of, oh, you know, a lady was, a lady was murdered there. But, you know, as a kid and a teen, you, you don't really know any of the details of it. But until I took it on for season two, I had no clue the depth of of that case. So it was really more of a, uh, you know, I hate to say it crudely, but growing up, it was more of a kind of a ghost story type understanding of something that real happened. But, you know, now it's it's obviously significantly way more than I, I thought you did such a beautiful job of creating a sense of place with that. I mean, I lived on the Outer Banks from 1990 until 1998, and it was it's such a magical place. It's such a like a middle of nowhere place. And that period of time, I think, too, it was so changing. You know, I mean, I had a front page story about ooh, we had a stoplight on the beach road, you know, right. and front page story about the Walmart coming to town. So everything was changing during that period. What what do you think um, you were able to do with those stories because you knew that place so well, because you grew up there? How did that help influence your reporting? Well, I think, yeah, you're right. It's, it's setting the scene. I mean, you could just say coastal North Carolina town. Well, if you look at the map, there's a lot of coastal North Carolina towns and they all have their own vibe and they all have their own feel. Um, you know, Emerald Isle is a lot different than Hilton Head, even though it's in South Carolina, than, you know, Beaufort and, and the OBX. So my thing was, how do I translate to people how Manio is 
uh, from the perspective of someone who grew up there riding her bike, uh, you know, walking, going to church. I mean, I rarely left the island as a kid. So, you know, it's setting that scene. It's, it's showing the relevance of the history, right? Because that particular area is very historic. And so how did this murder and this, tra- you know, tragic sequence of events, how does it fit into this completely opposite idyllic you know, city or town. And, and, and the drastic contrast is it's so apparent that if I don't paint one fully, you know, if I paint one more fully than the other, you know, the crime and not the area, then then you're not really getting why it's so important, you know. So that was big for me. And I just think the influence of growing up there and, and you know, knowing street names like the back of my hand is, is you know, that's that's critical as a writer, I think. So walk us through your research process. How do you, how do you start to peel back uh, on a story that's, you know, decades old. Yeah. So my process, obviously, for the two seasons is very different, right? So the Denise Johnson case, that's unsolved. So from the perspective of of being a reporter, I'm literally going and digging up never before known stuff. I'm going back from absolute scratch and I'm trying to help bring resolution, help solve it, whatever, you know, whatever you want to say. But um, so that's very different, right? Because there's not a lot of public record. Everything's sealed because it's an active case. You know, there's no witnesses on a witness list that you can go track down. You've got to just find them. You know, you, you can't start from some pre-prepared uh pile of documents. But in season two with Stacey Stanton, because the the case to some, you know, to some degree went through a traditional judiciary process, right? It went through the criminal justice system. You do have a a treasure trove of of, um, transcript and information and you get to understand who are the characters I need to talk to. Are these people still alive? Understanding law. and, And so they're very different. But I always start with being in the area, starting ground zero, going to the crime scene, um, and then go out from there. And obviously with the passage of time, finding family members of, of the, of the victims, you know, that, uh, that widens out because people have scattered over the decades. So, you know, it's a combination of all those things. I call them, I talked to a, an FBI agent the other day and it's called parallel lines of investigation is what he referred to it as. And, and it's so true. You're never going in one track. You're going in tracks that are side by side and getting as much as you can. How do you balance the audio with the context that you want to get across when you're putting together these podcasts? You know, that challenge of when do you leave it to the audio to help you tell the story versus um, you, you know, your your impact as a writer? Um, have you got I mean, I assume that's been a process and you've been learning how to how to juggle that. Yeah, I mean, in the audio space, it's it's really different um, to the respect it's different from where I came from, right? Which was video and TV. So, <laughs> you know, you having the the cops in on camera is kind of tells the story, right? But when you don't have that, you you've got to paint the scene. So so there's a combination of of for me, it's a combination of letting the recorder roll at all times, right? So if I'm meeting someone I've never met, or it's a phone call or something, you know, obviously within the bounds of legal consent and laws and things like that, you know, but um, getting all of that, it, capturing it audio wise just helps me paint a picture. You know, if I'm calling a state entity, I need to get that on record. I need to, I need to describe for the listener the same process that I went through. You need to hear it for yourself, how difficult it is to get a record or how easy it is or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, so that's the marrying of, of uh, 
you know, audio to, to doing the, doing it well. Um, but you know, with some things in the show, you know, yeah, there are effects added in. As a writer, I'm I'm envisioning a scene and, okay, I don't have raw audio of, you know, keys jingling or something. So we add that in in editing and, and a lot of podcasts do that. And I think people realize, okay, you know, that that's an added in sound, but I think it helps paint the picture. And that's, as a writer, what you're trying to do, especially in a narr- narration style where you don't just want to hear me drone on for 15 minutes. You know, you got to break it up somehow. And so that's an element of it too. Do you write the scripts and do the audio yourself? Are you the one man band here? No. So I, I do all of the interviews. I do all of the, um, uh, transcribing all of the interviews. I still do it my old school method, um, pretty much by hand, which is, you know, just me. But, um, and then I do all the script writing and outlining. And then we outsource to a, a, a subcontractor for the editing called Resonant Recordings. They're a fantastic uh, professional podcasting company that really um, does an amazing job of, of following script. And we have a great relationship where, you know, my editing notes, they understand how I write and it's a good process with them. And so that helps, obviously, on the, the time side for me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Me, you know, I want to work with a good company, but I can't be doing the editing myself. Um, it's just a huge time consumer. So, you know, that relationship is, is really good. But yeah, most of it's heavy lifting on my side for the beginning part. And then once I hand it to them, it's, you know, it's full steam ahead till the season comes out. <laughs> so Delia, how do you get people to talk about these 30, 20 year old cases, especially like prosecutors or judges who, you know, might feel like you're you're making a judgment about the work they did. Well, I think I think my approach is always, hey, look, I've done the research. I have really dedicated time and effort to see everything from all sides and get as much information as I can so that I'm not just coming to them with speculation or coming to them with rumor. I'm saying, hey, I'm looking at these facts. This is what I've interviewed people. This is what's being said to me. Um how can I get you to give me your side of it? And and to some extent, particularly in season two, and even in season one, for sure, there's been significant cooperation from, you know, whether it be former attorneys or prosecutors or district attorneys who have uh, taken the opportunity to, to participate. Um, the ones that don't, I think, again, you're just that constant struggle of, look, I'm not trying to judge you. I'm not trying to say you did something wrong or right. I'm trying to say, explain it because it's never been explained. And, you know, you don't have to explain it to me, explain it to the listeners, explain it to people that are wanting to know the truth. And so there's a balance there. Um, There's trust and relationship. Um, There's working on people for months and then they agree to talk to you and then they decide not to talk to you. So, you know, I think it's just balancing that. But um, I always try and go into it with as much information as I can. So it's not just me going, hey, I need your comment. If you don't comment, click buy. It's it's a conversation that's had more so than anything. 
Well, and it seemed like for some of the people, even the more surprising, like the prosecutor from back in the day, that it was almost cathartic in a way. Like that something had been weighing on these people for a while, right? Like, did you know that going in that it was going to be something that people maybe said they didn't want to talk about, but were glad to once you got them going? And, you know, I said this the other day to somebody. It it, it was staggering to me that when I came into it, I thought... You know, it was going to be more people were kind of, ooh, it's been so long. Why are you approaching us? When in reality, I ran into almost all of the people in season two were like, finally, someone's asking us about what we know. Or, you know, finally, I feel like I can hint to something or say something. There was, yeah, there was this, there's this sense of relief from a lot of the interviews where they're like, I thought never anyone, no one was ever going to ask me, you know? And so that was most surprising to me. And I think you're right. There, there is a advantage maybe of the passage of time where people suddenly now feel like it's safe enough to really say how they feel. Um, And to me, as a writer and a storyteller and a journalist, that's what you're there for. That is where the truth lies. And so, yeah, it's it's been interesting. What are you hoping for when, I mean, there's so much appeal to true crime. People are really into mm-hmm. it. And and maybe it's some of what you just talked about, you know, that it's they were important and they didn't get the attention they needed or or maybe people are looking for some sense of resolution. But but what do you what do you what do you gather from your audience that they they are getting from this or what are you hoping they're getting from it? One, I hope that they are learning about a uh, tragic case of a murder and an injustice that they didn't know about before. I mean, not giving knowledge to a greater audience of wrongs being done um, is what I think is kind of part of the journalistic creed uh, to many in many respects. Um, so making people aware, for sure, is a huge, huge goal, and I think it's been accomplished by the show. Um, and secondly, uh, providing information that wasn't previously known um, to a lot of people, people high up on the food chain and people that uh, deserve answers like family members. Um, and so I think giving peace to people that want peace, giving them knowledge is a big part of it. Um, you know, advocating for wrongs being made right um, is a big part of it, too. And I, especially with season two, where, you know, there's a lot of information that um, that points in other avenues that were never looked into. And I think that's a, a huge travesty on the on the judicial systems part in North Carolina. And uh, to let people know that is a, is a huge point of the show um, in season two. And I, that, you know, that's just a motivation, period. Do, do you think that the podcast could bring about change in terms of reopening a cold case or finding another? I mean, the, the guy who was accused in season two obviously is out of jail and served his time. But if there's still a killer out there, do you think that your podcast could bring awareness to break some changes? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, we saw a tremendous, um, you know, success in season one with bringing it to the district attorney's attention, who was unaware of the Denise Johnson unsolved case. So, you know, somebody who held office in Dare County as the highest chief law enforcement officer didn't even know that the case existed. So that in itself is a huge, huge victory, um, you know, for the family, not so much for me. But, um, you know, secondly, getting leads out there, right? Uh, Having a district attorney say, you know, this case is no longer considered cold. You know, that tells me something is going on behind the scenes. Now, I'm not privy to that, but and I shouldn't be. But, you know, 
it tells me wheels are turning. At least I hope that. Um, and so that's that's a that's a plus for that case for season two. Absolutely, I think this season's going to make a huge difference in Clifton Spencer's life. I think it's already made a huge difference in Stacey Stanton's surviving family member's life and um, the community as a whole. Right? I mean, there's people that didn't even know this story. And so to me, again, it goes back to the knowledge and it goes back to um, the impact of, yeah, I think a lot of things could change. I, I hope people in North Carolina government are listening and paying attention because in the end, they're going to hold the key to, to righting wrongs. And, um, you know, putting that pressure is kind of what I'm after, at least for season two. When you gravitate to these particular cases, I mean, is I assume some of it is the access that you might be able to get. Um, you know, but are there what are the things that you're looking for when you when you decide whether to make it a podcast topic? Um, I'm obviously looking for um, a story that's uh, there's so many questions. There's there's things that need to be reexamined and things that really don't add up. And for me as a journalist, that is a draw because it tells me there's more to be found and there's more to be revealed. And so that's my biggest pull. Not that any case is not deserving of a lot of attention. I mean, I have a lot of people write in, will you take you know this case up or that case up? And my heart wants to do all of them. But, um, but to some extent, the, the ones that I pick to really give a, li- a year of my life or two or three years of my life to um, are the ones where I really, truly believe in my heart that more can be done and that answers are, are being hidden um, either due to, you know, bad handling of an investigation or they're being hidden because somebody wants them hidden. And so, you know, that's that's the motivation for me, I think, for sure. So you're getting people whose response is to like tell you, oh, let me tell you about what happened to my family. Is that happen a lot? Yeah, a lot of people write into me, you know, daily and they say, hey, I, I have a loved one. Um, can you there was a murder or there's a suspicious death or and, and my heart, you know, it breaks because it's a reminder of how much this happens. Um, and so or I have a missing a missing relative. And, you know, and of course, I'd love to be detective for everybody. Um, but in reality, you know, that's obviously not realistic. And, and to be quite honest, that's that's why we have a, <laughs> a system of law enforcement. Right. That's that's their job from the get go. Not that I wouldn't want to ever contribute my services to that. But, you know, there's a law enforcement system for a reason. And so, uh, yeah, it breaks my heart. Um, And I always respond to those people um, to the best of my ability, because it's it really is a tragedy to, to know how many people listen to true crime that, in fact, are living and walking in a true crime themselves. And and that's that's real sad. Can you talk a little bit about your audience who's out there listening and, and whether there's a certain demographic that surprised you? Yeah. So that's the cool thing about podcasting is um, there's this huge expense. I mean, I get messages from like, you know, teen, preteen, like true crime, you know, addicts um, to to people that are, are you know, in their 60s and 70s. And so there's this great audience um, of people that just really like this genre and they really like the show and um a lot of them are, are interactive on social media and, and, um, you know, it just, it's this cool community from all over the world. I mean, I have people that have written me from Iceland and Germany and Russia and, you know, South America. And it's just, to me, I'm like, oh, that's so cool. You know, we've got billboards. That's great. But for me internally, it's that Denise Johnson's name is known by someone in Australia. Stacey Stanton and Clifton Spencer's names are known by people in California and wherever that never would have known their names before. 
And that's, for me, that's the coolest part, um, aside from all the popularity and everything. But yeah, it's it's pretty cool. <laughs> it sounds like you found um, a niche um, for your career. Yeah. I mean, like this, it, like this has become a really good natural place for you. Yeah, I think when you when you grow up being someone who asks questions and and stuff, you never really know that this is how something's going to flesh out. You never know. I mean, I never knew like, okay, I'm going to be an investigative journalist in podcasting. But when it you realize the impact you can have. Um, you know, you kind of realize, all right, well, this is this is what I'm known for. And maybe one day I'll evolve into something else, but who knows? <laughs> do you have a season three that you're embarking on? Yeah, right now I am in production for Counterglock season three. I won't say what the case is, but um, it's, you know, right up the alley of same, you know, the other shows, the same, you know, kind of uh, type of investigative style and writing and such. So it's been... Um, I won't say, <laughs> um, for right now Stay I won't tuned. say, but, um, <laughs> but it is, it really is, it's again, it's all the elements of these cases where it's just almost unbelievable, just the, the facts and the people that come forward and stuff. And, and for me, it's just a reminder, you know, these stories are out there a lot more than people think. So again, it's Counterclock. You can find it, I guess, wherever you can find podcasts, right? Um, yeah. If you have a question for Delia or for Lane, or you want to suggest a podcast topic, find us on our Facebook group or email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Ayana Ishmael. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.